is Transitional Matters with Chris Marshall. With Chris Marshall. We've gathered the best thinkers from around the world to talk about the most important social, environmental, financial, technological, and geopolitical transitions that affect your life. Transitional Matters is all about bringing the greatest thinkers directly to your ears. The most important trends, megatrends, and transitions that are going on around us. Now zip up and put your headphones on. Broadcasting direct from the UK, here's your host, Chris Marshall. Well, welcome to this episode of Transitional Matters. Today, I'm joined by Jared Yarnell Shane. He's the director of the Bioimicry Institute. And we're going to dive into kind of what that means and what you do and, you know, kind of where that thinking takes you. Jared, could I get you to kind of just give a, a very brief overview of, of who you are what you do now and perhaps how you've arrived at being the director of such a cool sounding institute, I have to say. Yeah, I'd be happy to. And thanks so much for having me, Chris. So I arrived at this point, I always like to say it started at summer camp. My dad was appointed to run a, a church camp about two hours outside of New York City when I was 10 years old. So I had this amazing opportunity to grow up in about a thousand acres of pristine forest. I got to watch beavers dam up a stream, create a lake, then turned into a wetland. And I didn't really have TV or internet. So that all of my time was spent outside exploring, asking questions about how things work. That moves me along to school. I got an engineering degree and I interned at a steel manufacturing facility. And it was the complete opposite of my upbringing. I saw an amazing feat of engineering that just did not at all align with what I was used to. And that kind of set me off on this course of asking questions around like, well, how would nature do it? How, how can we bring people back and reconnect to nature and the living world all around us? So that, that's kind of how I got into this biomimicry sphere. And I'll just take a moment to quickly describe what biomimicry is. Yeah, please do, because I have to say I'm I'm not well versed, but I probably know more than most. Is that fair enough to say? Absolutely fair. And that's typically when people hear the word for the first time, they're not exactly sure what it means. So I always like to just break it down. Um, biomimicry, you can kind of pull it apart. We have bio, which means life. And then we have mimic, which means to emulate, to to copy something. So how do we mimic life? How do we, how do we emulate life? And that's really what it comes down to is how can we learn from biology and life all around us that's been evolving for millions, if not billions of years to inform our own built environment so that we become not separate from nature, but really in tune with what nature is doing already and part of natural systems and processes and materials. So that's what we do at the Institute. If I just jump in there. And this might be a really naive, stupid question. And so please do tell me if it is. But is bioimicry all about kind of engineering thinking or does it go broader than that in terms of systems thinking and design thinking? Where is its boundaries? Oh, a great question. I think biomimicry happens across spheres and di disciplines. And one thing we like to say is that biomimicry isn't new from 
first human technologies and advancement was often spent observing nature from identifying what food do we eat to how do we create the shape of boats to more recent examples like flight. How do we study things that fly and create fixed swing airplanes, for example? Humans have been learning from nature since as long as there have been humans. Only recently have we started to create materials and systems in a way that, that don't necessarily align with what happens in nature. And there's a couple themes to call out there. So back to the steel plant, a ton of heat and energy and pressure goes in to make steel and metal all around us. There's really not life other than humans that takes advantage of that. Of course, we have magma and volcanoes, but like nothing else is heating something up to 1000 degrees Celsius to create something new, to smelt metal or things like that. So that's one kind of material example. I think on the the process side, some other things that we like to talk about are the linear economy versus circular economy in nature. One organism's waste is another organism's food and the cycle keeps perpetuating. Whereas our systems nowadays, um, that decomposition or end of life is just not accounted for. So I think there's a real systems level shift that needs to happen there as well. So a little bit of a roundabout answer, but I, I hope that helps to show like the breadth. It's like it's a materials issue and it's a systems issue that we're trying to address. That's really good. Would you say when you kind of look back that this has kind of been a temporary shift, I don't know, over the last 250 years, 300 years maybe, that we've come away from that nature-inspired design and we're now moving back? Is that where you see it? That's a great question. A historian or anthropologist could probably answer better about the exact timing, but I think a big shift happened with the rise of agriculture and kind of permanent settlement because that is artificially kind of creating artificial ecosystems. Essentially, the whole theory of agriculture, or at least um, Western agriculture, is how can we kind of grow crops that otherwise wouldn't grow here or raise livestock that otherwise wouldn't grow here? I think uh, that kind of kickstarted it. And that has perpetuated into this view of natural resources. Because re- really, I think that's always one of the, the fun things I like to think about is we talk about natural resources and they're things that we extract from nature. Whereas perhaps we should flip that and think about natural resources as things that we can work with in nature and, and help regenerate and revitalize nature um, at the same time. Absolutely. In fact, it was a book by an economist in the 70s called Schumacher who got me into economics. So he wrote a book, and you're probably well aware of it, called uh, Economics as if Humans Mattered, I think, or Nature Mattered, or one of the two. The thesis was that we were treating natural resources as though it was income and actually we were spending the capital. And it, I just remember reading this going, actually, that makes a whole lot of sense. So in terms of kind of some of that material design that biomimicry would would kind of tackle. Have you got some examples of where this has been put to use? And because you've mentioned steel, obviously that's linked to your background. I'm just fascinated as to kind of are there some examples which kind of really put some some flavor to this? Oh, I have so many examples to share. So so please stop me if if you want to dive in. So one that I think really helps put this concept into reality is talking about pigments and paints. So things that we don't normally think about, but are so important. I haven't thought about either of those things yeah, yet today. So here we go. Yeah. <laughs> um, whole, whole new world to explore. If you look around for podcast listeners, look around your room. My walls are white. Chris, it looks like your walls are white. You might have white paper sitting on your desk. Maybe you had a powdered sugar donut or you brushed your teeth with white toothpaste. That color white 
isn't naturally occurring in all these substances, that, that color white is probably caused by a pigment called titanium dioxide. Titanium dioxide is titanium product that is mined in titanium mines. So in places like Canada or Sierra Leone or South Africa. So if you think about it, that's kind of strange. We're mining metals, we're creating these open pit mines usually to extract titanium dioxide that we then use to make white all around us because humans like the color white. It represents clean cleanliness. But we look at nature and there are so many organisms and plants that are white that don't use metals. They're not using titanium dioxide. So how are they getting that that white color? And for any of you that are physicists or engineers, white means you're scattering light. So there's lots of ways to scatter light in nature. And researchers out of the University of Cambridge were specifically looking at this white beetle. It's called a Cyphocalus beetle, brilliant white beetle that is very efficient at creating white. It has a very, very thin layer of hairs that scatters light very efficiently, making it look white. And they were wondering, well, how can we replicate that pattern using readily available materials like cellulose or replenishable materials like cellulose? So the company we supported through our programs, Impossible Materials, spun out of this University of Cambridge lab and are now making these cellulose-based, it's 100% cellulose, white pigment and they are starting to grow into first the pharmaceutical sector and then into the food sector and i think that's a great example for so many reasons but most of all because titanium dioxide industry is a a 12 billion dollar industry so put the scale on it it's like we mine 12 billion dollars annually of this white pigment and it's kind of ridiculous. So how can we disrupt that and, and change that by learning from nature and looking to nature's wisdoms as opposed to forcing extraction? And what are some of the hurdles for adopting these? Because I mean, the, the way you've kind of described that, that seemed like a kind of almost a no-brainer, like, oh, well, we don't now have to mine titanium. But what are some of the hurdles to that? I mean, I'm not just talking about like, technology. Is there kind of like initially, I'm guessing there must be price point, yeah. like the cost of implementing whatever this beetle is doing in a pharmaceutical product is quite high. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So I think it's only been recently that we've had the tools and by recently, I mean like 50 years to to some more modern tools in the 2000s um, that we've had the tools to really understand what's happening at these micro and nano levels. So that was kind of hidden away for a long time. And now we have the ability to see and understand how that works. So that's more on the technology development side, but the real barrier that we see is exactly what you mentioned. It's competing against an entrenched $12 billion industry with maybe just a few major players is incredibly hard. Um, It's almost like trying to break into a monopoly. So that's really the issue. And, And what we're seeing is what's helping companies like Impossible Materials is actually regulation coming from the EU. So a big reason why they're able to move into these marketplaces is because titanium dioxide was recently listed as a possible carcinogen and not safe for consumption. So now all of a sudden there's regulatory pressure for pharmaceuticals or food products to shift away from that. And then I I guess that kind of the the hope of that is that kind of then is more than just proof of concept. It's it's then kind of brings down the cost per unit and everything else. And it then becomes the way from then on. One of the things I just, just wanted to pick up on what you said, which I found really interesting. So the pivotal moment in this case, and I'm asking if this is now broader, 
was what you were saying, kind of our ability to measure and our ability to see the, the, the kind of the micro scale. Is that the case of what you see a lot in that you're, you're teasing out nature's secrets? It is. It is, especially on the materials and chemistry side. I think system side are things that we've been able to observe for a long time, but we've often had like a reductionist mindset as we're looking at it. It's one way or the other and ignoring a lot of the complexities in there. But yeah, I think for the materials and chemistry, it's just recently that we're, we've been able to really measure what's happening and then uh, figure out ways to synthesize that in the lab, whether that's, that's a complete mimic and emulation or using new tools of biotech to be able to grow new proteins or, or be able to develop an analog that we're able to harvest and use. Amazing. Now, I want to come back to the circular economy. So I guess this now strays into the system side. Would you say that nature is circular? That's where I want to start. Yes. Is it circular in the sense that people who are advocating the circular economy, is it the same? Or is it a different circular pattern? Oh, it is a different circular pattern. And I think the circular economy is starting to catch up to it, the circular economy movement. But I'm just looking outside my window here and a great example, I live in deciduous forest on the northeast of the US. Every year, leaves fall from the trees, those leaves decompose, and they don't turn back into that same exactly. It's all those basic building blocks are distributed throughout the ecosystem. Some is stored as soil, some will go back into the tree, many will turn into new plants, some will blow by the wind or water. So I think that's what the circular economy movement has been missing is that things in nature and just laws of entropy tell us one thing isn't going to turn back into the same exact thing. It's going to break down and get scattered. So what we look at when we say circular economy is how do we break things down into those basic building blocks that then can be taken up by other natural systems or used in other industrial processes without the need to turn one, let's say, glass bottle into another glass bottle. It's almost like building in that decay phase of nature. Is that right? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. We've yeah. been designing things to last for a long time. And I think an, any product designer's job should also be looking at end of life. And that doesn't mean, oh, this this will die in five years and then someone gets a new one. It's like, no, what, what happens how do we design for decomposition is, is kind of what we're terming it. How do we, how do we design products to follow these natural laws so that we don't have an accumulation of pollutants or microplastics and things like that? And again, I mean, like kind of, I know, I know you said you had a plethora of examples. Do you have something which kind of dies into that? That's fascinating in terms of trying to design a product that not only lasts and is high quality and does its job, but potentially feeds into something else. I have a great example to share with a company called MycoCycle, which is based out of Chicago. And it was started by a construction industry veteran who saw the massive amounts of construction debris, construction waste, something we don't really think about. Forget how many times bigger, but construction waste far outpaces the amount of like household waste. I think it's by more okay. than 10 to 1. Um, I'd have to fact check those numbers. Wow. But yeah, it's a huge, huge cause of landfilling and just waste accumulation. So they were looking at that. It was like, well, what if we change that perspective from being waste to being a feedstock? What, what would need to happen? And what they started to explore was mycoremediation and using fungi to actually break down different pieces of construction waste to then be used as other raw inputs into the industry. So for example, they've 
done studies on asphalt shingles, which is traditionally hard to recycle, and then also drywall sheetrock. And they use fungi to break down those waste streams that can break it down almost completely. And then that resulting um, mycelium material can then be used as either new sheetrock material or new insulation products. Also exploring things like concrete adnics or, or other things there as well. Um, and I think that's a great example of learning from nature on a systems level and also working with nature to accomplish desired effects. Uh, I think traditionally you wouldn't want mold and fungi to exist on building surfaces, but what if we, what if we looked at that as a tool to use and, and found ways that we could create strains that were, were beneficial to us? So. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that's actually, you know, kind of, I know I'm straying slightly off topic here, but one of the things which I found personally amazing is the, the amount of uses of yeah. fungi in things that you kind of go, really? It, they, they found a way to use essentially mushrooms to, that might be my naive brain. It might not be mushrooms, but this, that kind of organic material to build something which you'd go, no way. That's, that's not a, an organic product that they're making with it, but they, they, they are. In terms of kind of companies that you come across, I mean, the two that you've just mentioned, I don't know what size they are, but then they're not the big giants, I'm assuming. Are you finding that it's small, innovative companies that are playing with this or are kind of some of the really big national, international companies kind of setting up teams and, and working with institutes such as, such as yours? Our focus within our innovation group is on these early stage technologies and startups. So most of what I see is, is at that early stage and, and early stage typically means they are at their seed round of funding. That might mean okay. different things depending on where you are, but typically groups we work with have secured like $500,000 in funding up to $5 million okay. in funding. And that's a really important threshold because um, typically you can get a lot of government-backed research funds to get to that point. And then it's getting over that hurdle to scale, to compete in these billion dollar industries. That is the hard part. So that's where as a nonprofit, we, we try to have an intervention at that point. No, that sounds really, really good. And then in terms of kind of where, where do you see a lot of the most interesting things? I mean, if you were to, I, I know you can't be too biased here and have too many favorites, but kind of some of the things which really appeal to you personally, what are some of those things that you've seen and just gone, oh my word, wow. I'm trying to get to like something that crosses your desk and you skip. No yeah. way. <laughs> oh man, those are the those are the fun ones. I think um, we already mentioned one, which are these decomposition technologies. Really fascinated by mycelium, um, fungi, fungi-based products. So decomposition technologies is one we're we're keenly watching. I think a little tangential side note is decomposition technologies are really set up to work locally as well, which is something we love to see. Is we don't necessarily want we have seen what looks what an economy looks like when everything's centralized. So what would it look like if these are, are decentralized yeah. and, and more community-based? I think that's a, an important. Some other really interesting things that we're following are in material surfaces and, and surface finishing. If you think in nature and even think, look at your skin, like your skin is waterproof, yeah. but it's also breathable. Um, if you look at, at leaves, they're self-cleaning because of something called the lotus effect. So again, we now have the ability to look at what's happening at a nano and micro level or at, even at a cellular level and replicate those patterns. So yeah, before our big companies looking at this, um, often they are, 
And often they're looking at it through this lens of, of university research or startups. So a company we, we recently supported called Fusion Bionic has developed this laser system that can mass kind of print nanoscale patterns on a wide variety of hard surfaces. For example, they could mimic a de-icing surface that exists in nature to keep ice from nucleating on plants and leaves. They could mimic that de-icing surface on airplanes, and they're doing studies to, to show how that might work with some of the major airlines. So surface finishing and surface texturing is another area that I'm keenly interested in. And the last is just a little bit of a personal bias. I have a, a deep fascination in agriculture and food. And I th- I'm really fascinated with some new insights coming out about how do we protect crops in more natural ways? How do we work with plants' kind of own defense mechanisms and chemical signaling to, to increase disease resistance, as well as exploring things like agroforestry and, and how do we have perennial crops instead of annual crops. I think there's a whole lot to explore and learn in the agriculture sector as well. How does that kind of differ? Because from what you're saying on like the surface level, and again, this is my naivety playing into this, but how does that differ from just kind of what we're used to in genetically modified? Because it sounds as though genetically modified had similar aims, like, oh, we don't want it to have as much disease and we want it to yield more. How does the biomimicry approach that differently to GM? I, a lot of the groups that we have supported are around the food loss and food preservation space. So it's not necessarily increasing yields, it's, it's preserving the yields that already are being harvested. So, But just lost. But lost, exactly. So a great example is like when okay. you pick a tomato, that tomato doesn't die right when you pick it off the vine, it's still living just is not attached to the parent plant anymore. So it doesn't have access to the plant defense mechanism that it might have, but you can still activate them. And there's some really interesting work around like, how do you chemically activate that in these plants? Because these molecules exist in nature, they should be safer. You always have to do the test, but we're not creating like, or, or I should say these groups aren't creating synthetic molecules. They're often things that are readily found already in tomato plants or, or in other types of species. I'm going to throw you like a really tough question here. What's your kind of like, if I was to transport you to the future, you can choose how far. Could be 10 years, could be 50 years or anywhere in between. But kind of what are the things that you really hope to see happen? In I'm not going to hold you to this, by the way. <laughs> let's put that caveat in the podcast. You're not predicting the future, but let's, you know, some of the things that you see happening now, you must kind of sit there and go, wow, if this was actually employed internationally, across the board, if this changed this process and that process, where do you think it takes us? What are some of the big changes that you'd like to see happen? It's such a fun question. I often love to do an exercise with some of our participants. Like 30 years ago, the iPhone didn't exist, right? So 30 years from now, what will change? The rate of innovation is happening so fast. I actually think we're on a trajectory where this is going to become more and more of the norm. I think we're going to see more and more nature-inspired companies. What I would like to see, what our focus is at the Institute, is how do we make sure we're not solving one problem and creating two more in the process? So I think it's not necessarily a technology that I 
steer predicts, but I would, I, I think in order to create a more just and equitable future, we need to look at and redefine like what those ownership structures look like. Like in nature, ecosystems fail when there's one organism that is sucking up all the resources, right? Like eutrophication is a great example. When all of these resources pour into the ocean and it creates an algal bloom, like that kills the ecosystem and then the algae can't survive either. So I think I'm really curious, like how can we help these young entrepreneurs or these early stage founders have some really strong environmental and sustainability ethos, as well as some want to create societal good from this early age. I think that's the systems level shift we need. Um, not, not even to mention there's so much now work on toxic chemicals. What are you using in your, your processes? So I think that's the other, other flip side of this is there's some structural things, but then there's also the process innovation. Like often good might be okay for the planet, but it's the process in between where a lot of environmental harm happens. So how can we make some process improvements along the way? Amazing. Uh, so, I mean, I, again, I want to tap into something because it's clear that you kind of work and devour these kind of incredibly innovative projects and companies. Because, I mean, this is one of the things that I see. I, I know that when we spoke a few months ago, we kind of got onto kind of a, an optimistic outlook. I certainly have an optimistic outlook for the future. And I think it's because I'm fairly close to conversations with people like you and with innovators. And I just see the pace of change. And I think that's something that the general public don't. And that they're just fed a narrative, which is fear of the future without seeing the solutions. I mean, do you get a sense of optimism from everything you see going on or not? I, there's no right or wrong answer. I'm not trying to send you down a, a path here. I'm 100% optimistic. I think it's apt. Our, our program's name is the Ray of Hope. Um, so I think it, it's very apt. Is how do we how do we shine rays of hope in this kind of yeah field that that's been dominated by despair? You know, we have to face face the realities. Like climate change is happening. I think I think that we're not going to hit targets. So we're going to have to have all kinds of mitigation and adaptations along with drawdown solutions. But I'm incredibly hopeful. I think that we see a younger generation. Some of the other work we do at the Institute is on our youth education side. So, so we see a younger generation that okay. is yearning for pathways and opportunities to make a difference. And I think that's probably the real systems level change is how can we help young people and students um, have better access to information that has historically been locked away for academics or, or how can we help make classes like biology class more relevant to solving these big challenges or engineering how I as a trained engineer I took one biology class and it had no relevance to the work I did what would it look like if we had biology for engineers where we got to learn about decomposition or we yeah. got to learn about biotoxicity and things like that like I think that's the longer term kind of societal pivot that we're starting to see that makes me incredibly hopeful I'm 100% an optimist. I think technology is only one part of that solution. Um, and I, I think as a global society, we're moving in the right direction. No, I'd, I'd completely echo that. And, you know, I often talk about kind of, I, like you, I mean, it's, it's very easy to fall into that trap, isn't it? Where you say, oh, I'm optimistic about the future and people go, you don't see the threats. Well, you don't see the hurdles. And, and it's actually not the same. So, you know, from a lot of my research, I obviously span two very different areas which is futures thinking and then behavioral science. 
And when you actually look back through history, there there is one undeniable attribute that hu- the human race has, and that is our ability to adapt and innovate and create. I personally, where I feel this is really sad, and this is where there needs to be more engagement with that youth space particularly, is when we're overwhelmed, when we're kind of overloaded, we could call it anxiety, stress, we actually naturally become fearful. Talk about our natural system, our autonomic nervous system goes, oh my word, this is a situation where I should be in survival mode, and we close down. And we stop being all those things we need to be to overcome the hurdles. And I think that's why it's so important to kind of paint these pictures of optimism and show people what's happening and what's going on and what people are, are doing. I think we've got an incredible future ahead if we can if we can just maybe overcome some of the overload yeah. in our own heads. Exactly. It's so important. A piece of the program we actually focus on, we're working with these early stage founders or for some of our other programs, early career scientists that both are facing tremendous mental health struggles and, and issues, um, facing burnout, depression. So a big part of our, our focus is let's get people outside and give them some opportunity to what we say, disconnect to reconnect. How do you disconnect from the noise that's out there to really center on yourself yeah. and center on nature and give you some mechanisms to help you be more resilient along the way. Amazing. So to kind of wrap up, where can people find more about you, about the Biomimicry Institute? Where should we send them? The first place I'd send you is to a website called asknature.org. So asknature.org. Okay. Um, and there you'll find a tremendous resource that we, we curate thousands of biological strategies. So evolutionary strategies um, that are written for high school or maybe even a middle school audience. So we take really complex science and boil that down to make it accessible for folks, as well as new innovations, um, uh, new nature-inspired innovations. Um, so that is the first place I'd send you. And then our website is biomimicry.org, and we have a tremendous amount of resources and programs there for people to participate in as well. Amazing. That's uh, that's absolutely superb. Thank you so much for sharing all all those insights and and kind of stories about what you see going on. Because as I said, kind of, I, I don't think these things are crossing the general public's desk. Then you know they're they're hidden away. They are the weak signals of innovation, and you know hopefully they move to the mainstream. But no, thank you so much for a conversation. It's been absolutely brilliant. Yeah, you got it, Chris. Thank you for the invite. This has been really fun. You've been listening to Transitional Matters. Make sure to like, subscribe, and sign up to the show's email newsletter by going to chrismarshall.uk. And we'll see you next time for more from the world of mega trends and transitions. All content is for informational purposes only and does not constitute an offer or recommendation to buy or sell any securities. Content should be treated as educational and general and should not be seen as a recommendation to use any particular investment strategy.